Again, we worship our God in the reading and the preaching of his word. And this is an act of worship. Think about that. Here in the worship service, we honor God and we receive from God by this means, by the reading and the preaching of his word. So we turn now to 2 Samuel 18. We're making our way through this book lately. At this point, we've made our way all the way through chapter 17. And we can get our bearings again this morning as we turn here. Remember, at this point in 2 Samuel, David's on the run from his own son, Absalom. Absalom has launched a rebellious campaign for the throne. Remember, what we did last week was to pick up on one particular aspect of the past few chapters and focus on it. It was that striking combination of dependent prayer and strategic activity on David's part. He prayed and he acted. And not only that, but he prayed and he acted with the very same outcome in view, which is that Ahithophel, the Gilonite, would not prevail with the wise counsel that he gave to Absalom. David prayed and he acted toward that one outcome. And as we've seen lately, it happened. God said yes, and David acted wisely. God said yes to David's prayer by means of David acting wisely in the way that he did. So that was last week. That's what we focused on. That brings us to this week. That brings us to chapter 18. 2 Samuel 18. This is one of those chapters that no matter how many times you've read it or heard it read, there is such drama here in this chapter. There is such emotion here that it cannot help but make an impact on you. Maybe even slow you down a little bit. As you read it, it's almost as if you can hear dramatic, ominous music playing as you read it. And as I'll explain in just a minute, for me, that's actually the case. This chapter has a kind of soundtrack for me, especially the way it ends. Remember where we left off at the end of chapter 17? Remember where we are on the map. David and his company, they have crossed the Jordan River. And so they're on the other side, they're on the eastern side of the Jordan. Absalom and his army, they're going to go after him. They're going to cross the river as well. And they're going to try to to defeat David there in battle. Remember, that's the deliberately bad advice that Hushai the Archite gave to Absalom about what to do next. So Absalom and his army, they're going to cross over the river and try to defeat David in battle. We've been told that David and his company have encamped at a place called Maenaim. We're told here in chapter 18 that the battle ensued in the forest of Ephraim. What all that means is, thinking north to south... We're roughly in the center of Israel, 
where all of this happens, on the other side of the Jordan. That's where we're situated. So listen now, 2 Samuel chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, 
Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day. But today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Himaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimahaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, for all that we find in it, including David praying and also David grieving. We pray that you would teach us today, for we know these things were written for our instruction, 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I've mentioned this before. I sang in various ensembles, choral ensembles, in high school and college. And many of the great choral works that I got to sing along the way were scripture texts set to music. No, no great surprise there. That's a significant aspect of our Western choral tradition. And if you've sung in ensembles yourself, you can probably relate. And most of those pieces that I remember, I remember from my days singing with the Virginia Glee Club at UVA. So to this day, there are quite a few scripture texts that I cannot hear or read without hearing the sound of those classic choral compositions ringing in my heart and mind. It's like there's this choral music library in my mind. And all the memories that go along with it. So, for example, thanks to Randall Thompson, I remember we sang 2 Samuel 23, the last words of David, he that ruleth over men must be just. Thanks to Leonard Bernstein, we sang Psalm 2, and we sang that one in Hebrew, Lamaragashu Goyim. Why do the nations rage? Thanks to Felix Mendelssohn, we sang Psalm 121. He watching over Israel slumbers not, nor sleeps. Thanks to Arvo Pert, we sang Psalm 130, and we sang that one in Latin. De profundis, out of the depths. The basses got us started on that one. That one was cool because it was all whole notes with gong accompaniment. Thanks to a whole slate of composers, we sang Lamentations 1, and we sang that one in Latin as well. O vos omnes. O all ye that pass by the way, attend and see if there be any sorrow like to my sorrow. Thanks to another slate of composers, we sang Luke 2, the so-called Nunc Dimittis, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. And thanks to Handel, we sang the whole Bible, because we sang the Messiah. So we performed all of those and probably some others, and I can hear every one of them right now in my head as I mention them. But hands down, out of all of them, out of all those memorable, scriptural, classic choral compositions that we sang, the ones that I remember most vividly were a set of four compositions that were settings of 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. The last verse in our chapter, the verse that describes the moment when David has learned that Absalom has died. Verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. My last year in college, the Virginia Men's Glee Club, we learned and performed Four 
different settings of that one verse composed throughout the ages. And we sang them one right after the other in concert, all four of them. It was emotionally grueling as well as musically challenging to make our way through those compositions one after the other. No surprise, one of them was in Latin. Absalom Fili Me by the 15th century French composer Josquin Desprez. That one had an ethereal renaissance ring to it, soaring in the concert hall. That's how we got started. Then came David's Lamentation by the 18th century American composer William Billings. That one was a charging sacred harp rendition. There was nothing ethereal and soaring about that one. It was almost a march, this determined march of, of grief. Then came another one entitled, When David Heard, by Thomas Tompkins, a 17th century composition. And then the last one was also called, When David Heard, by the composer Benjamin Browning, a 20th century composition. That one was actually composed for us, because our conductor knew the guy. And that's the one, and I can go back and listen to them. Of the four, it's that last one that gets me every time because it starts out somewhat soft and then it builds. And by the end, we were practically shouting, Would to God I had died for thee. And then it comes way down at the very end, soft again, like we've collapsed, exhausted in our own grief. All four of those compositions, one after the other, right in a row. It's a wonder that we were able to keep going with the rest of the concert. It's always struck me as somewhat ironic that we who sang those pieces were the glee club. There wasn't a whole lot of glee, at least not at the beginning of that concert, but then there wasn't a whole lot of glee when we were singing Lamentations either. But it's no wonder that that one Bible verse has captured the imagination, and the energies of countless composers throughout the ages. As I was saying before, the drama, the emotion in that one verse, it's extraordinary. It even speaks volumes about the one volume that is the Bible, that there's a verse like that in it that we can read and sing. To be sure, you can find all of those other passages that I mentioned before, and you can sing them, passages that have you soaring to the heavens and contemplating the glory of the God of heaven, but then you've got a verse like this one too, where you have pure, unrestrained, raw human emotion. This is not David soaring to the heavens. This is David collapsing to the ground. We don't have a psalm in the book of Psalms that David wrote that's linked with this moment, but this verse that we've got here In 2 Samuel, even though it is just one verse, it gives us plenty. There might be a part of us that thinks it's so powerful, just read it and call it a day. Just read it and let the power of that one final verse ring out and sink in and close in prayer and we'll get to chapter 19 next Sunday. 
But we cannot proceed like that. This is a verse to learn from as well as be moved by. This was written for our instruction and not just for our emotion. There's truth to be gleaned here. So that even this verse that caps off this chapter calls us to reflect upon it and to learn from it. And the point that I want us to pick up on today, the lesson that I want us to learn today is this. It's what I call the perseverance and the power of natural human bonds. The perseverance and the power of natural human bonds. Our natural earthly relationships, especially family relationships, they matter and they matter greatly. And they affect us powerfully. And they shape us deeply. The perseverance and the power of natural human bonds. Now it's certainly true that it is our relationship to God that is of paramount concern. We can acknowledge that. It's certainly true that that vertical relationship with God matters most in such a way that natural earthly relationships are put in their place. And you may remember, we've seen that. We've learned that lesson along the way in First and Second Samuel. This goes way back now, almost a year. It goes back to First Samuel 18. We learned the lesson then that it's our relationship to God and our commitment to the cause of God that puts natural family ties in their place. Way back in 1 Samuel 18. Remember David's own brothers rejected him, whereas Jonathan, to whom he wasn't related by blood, Jonathan was a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and at the same time, Jonathan effectively rejected his own father, Saul, by siding with David against Saul's wishes. So it's true, and we've seen this. It's our relationship to God and to the cause of God that is of paramount concern. But that does not mean, and this is the lesson we're gleaning today, that does not mean that natural family ties, natural bonds are obliterated or rendered meaningless or powerless by prevailing supernatural concerns. Far from it. Those ties, those bonds, they abide and they abide powerfully. Think about David in this moment. Think about David in this moment as a father. Yes, it's true that Absalom was a a rebel against the throne who deserved to die for that rebellion. Yes, it's true that Absalom was willing to rise up against the Lord's anointed, which is the very thing that David could never bring himself to do. Yes, it's true that even before this happened, Absalom had blood on his hands, and it was the blood of David's son, Amnon. Yes, it's true that David had already been put on notice that there would be this kind of violence with his own household as a result of his own sin. So yes, 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 all of that's true. But Absalom was still his son. 
And David was still his father. And, and David gets word that he's died. And there is a brutal finality in that moment. Whatever hopes David might have harbored as a father, that there'd be some way for this to end differently, and for Absalom to be redeemed, and for their relationship to be restored, whatever hopes he might have been harboring in that one moment, those hopes are snuffed out. And it's brutal. Absalom was still his son. I think it's fair to say that when it comes to earthly relationships, natural human bonds, the one that ranks first is the one between mother and child. That's got to be first place. One human being is not only born of another, but just spent months growing within that other person and growing from that other person and kicking her and wearing out her back and whacking out her hormones. There's nothing like it. It's just beautiful. So that one's got to be first place. And if you're the mother of twins, yours is a special place in heaven. But way up there on the list, I think I'd be willing to put it in second place, is the one between father and child. The father looks upon the child as his own procreation, and he does so with a solemn sense of his responsibility to protect and provide and teach and guide. There's nothing quite like that one either. And in that one moment, David is told, told by the Cushite who thinks it's good news, your son is dead. Not exactly in those words, but David understands. And for David, not only has he gotten word that his son has died, but also remember, that's the very outcome that he was so desperate to avert. Remember, he wanted to go out with the army in the first place. And you can imagine that if he had, he'd have done what he could to protect his son. He wanted to go out with the army. But he let them talk him out of it. And so as they're passing by, making their way out to battle, you remember the order he gives. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom and all the people heard. Now, understand, this is another one of those moments, and we've seen so many of them along the way in First and Second Samuel, another one of those moments where we're not given any moral commentary. This is not evaluated. We're not told if that's an order that David should have given. We've seen it before, that David wasn't always as forceful with his own children as he should have been, just like Samuel before him, just like Eli before him. Sadly, this has been a running theme. In these books. So we're not given any moral commentary. All we know, all we're told, is that David gave that order and everybody heard it. Everybody knew it. Absalom being killed in battle is exactly the outcome that David had tried so desperately to avert, and it happened anyway. David, as a father, must have been holding his breath until he got word only to have his breath taken away when he does. I know this through the very sad experience of friends of mine 
and, and maybe you do as well, even if it's not rational, even if they're not being fair to themselves, a father can carry with him the burden of guilt, believing that something happened to one of his children because he wasn't there to protect. And that is an unimaginable burden for any man to carry. And in David's case, as if that's not enough, David also knows deep down that all of these events are unfolding in the aftermath of his own sin. And the hard word that he got from God because of his sin. Remember back in chapter 12? God, through Nathan, says to David, You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So here in chapter 18, when David says, would I had died instead of you? He's not just a father who's lost his son. He's not just a father who'd wanted to protect his son. He's also a man who knows that he deserved to die first for what he did. Would I had died instead of you? Once it was Nathan the prophet who said to David, you shall not die as a result of what you've done. Now it's a Cushite messenger who says to David, your son Absalom has. And David is undone. So that's why I say what we've got on display here is the perseverance and the power of natural human bonds on display here vividly, unforgettably, devastatingly in David's case. And that truth, that reality, is on display not just here in 2 Samuel 18, in the Bible. So at this point, we're going to take a step back from 2 Samuel. We've reflected upon what we've seen here, especially at the end. Now we're going to take a step back from 2 Samuel, and we're going to notice the same truth, the same theme elsewhere in Scripture, because it is a running theme. The way our natural relationships abide and affect us and shape us And not only is this something that you see in different places in Scripture, but also in those different places you see this truth come out in different ways, in different contexts. So here in our passage this morning, 2 Samuel 18, this truth comes out, it's on display in the context of soul-crushing grief. And that's certainly part of it. 
The sorrows that we experience in this world, they run more deeply. They hit us more powerfully when it's a family member or a very close friend who's practically family, who's hurt in some way or who's lost. So that's certainly part of it, grief. But when we cast our gaze elsewhere in Scripture, we can see this reality in different contexts. It's not just grief. We can also say it's true when it comes to grace. And by that I mean it's a truth that comes out when it comes to handing over the truth of the grace of the gospel. The power of natural bonds comes into play there. Think about Deuteronomy 6. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. Just listen. Words you've probably heard before. Deuteronomy 6. Here's Moses preparing the people for life in the land. And he says this. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And then later in that same chapter we have this. When your son asks you in time to come what is the meaning of these things, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out. That's Deuteronomy 6. Now, I realize we may be so familiar with that passage, so familiar with the calling that Christian parents have to hand the gospel over to their children that we hardly notice that passage anymore. But let's notice it. Let's stop and think about it. The natural bond between parents and children abides even in a cursed world. And that's powerful. Human beings give life to another human being. And then that little one looks up to the bigger ones to protect and provide and teach and guide. That's true in natural things. Well, God takes that natural bond and he incorporates it into a supernatural mission. He incorporates it into the work of the gospel, the transmission of the gospel from age to age. So now it's supernatural life. That's being handed over by parents. Now it's heavenly instruction and guidance that's being sought by children. Blood is thicker than water. But the spirit is thicker than both of them. And the parent-child relationship becomes one of blood and spirit. In the kingdom of God. So you see it there in Deuteronomy 6. Perseverance and the power of these natural bonds. You see it as well. Here's a second example. You see it as well in John 10. Excuse me, John 19. This is why I made this our scripture reading earlier in our service. John 19. When Jesus saw his mother, and remember, this is when he's dying on the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now that is a very powerful picture of a natural human bond. As he's dying on the cross, and his mother is standing there, and he can see her. In that extraordinary moment, Jesus has the presence of mind and compassion of heart to care for her. 
by telling John to take care of her after he's gone. Think about that. And think about that against the backdrop of a moment earlier in Jesus' ministry. It's true, at one point earlier in his ministry, Jesus put even that bond in its place. Remember when he's teaching and they come to him and say, your family members are outside. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So it's true, Jesus said that. And that saying had the effect of putting natural human bonds in their place. But she was still his mother. She was still the one who carried him. And bore him. And nursed him. And as he's dying on the cross. As his natural life is about to expire. Not long before he says, it is finished. One of his last acts was to care for her life who had given him his. Here's one more instance of this elsewhere in Scripture. And this one follows on that one. So we've looked at Deuteronomy 6, John 19. Think about 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5. Paul's giving instructions to Timothy about life in the church, including earthly provision for the needy who are members of the church. So he's giving those instructions, and in that context, Paul says this, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. That's Paul's very, very strong way of saying that this responsibility to provide for our own family members is deeply woven into the very fabric of our humanness so that if you deny it, if you repudiate it, what does that say about you? The perseverance and the power of natural human bonds. You see, it's all over Scripture in all of these different ways. It's true in grief and in grace. It's true when it comes to earthly care and practical earthly provision. And so the lesson today for us, the reminder today, brothers and sisters, is that we're created that way as well. This is true in our lives too. We're bound to others by the closest of natural ties. And we've got to say, it's a good thing that we're created this way. There may be times when we'd prefer to be entirely on our own. And unshackled by these earthly ties. There may be times, thinking about David, thinking about our own experience, there may be times when we wish we did not have to experience the peculiar and exquisite pain that we feel. When we lose someone who is so close to us like that. And the end of 2 Samuel 18 is a devastating picture of that. Would to God I had died for thee, 
O Absalom, my son, my son. So it's true, these bonds can mean a more profound pain in grief. And it's true that these bonds mean burdens and responsibilities that rest on our shoulders and sometimes they rest heavily. But these bonds are good. Jesus himself experienced them and honored them. Jesus honored these bonds as he was dying. And we who are his servants are not above the master. So let us bless our maker today for the way that he's made us, including this. He has bound us in the closest of family ties. And now he's taken up those same ties and he has swept them up. He's sanctified them for the cause of the gospel. For our maker is our redeemer now. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do worship you today as our maker and our redeemer. And we thank you today for the blessed ties that bind us, earthly, natural ties, family ties. We thank you for them, though we are not unaware of what those ties can mean in our experience in a cursed world, in a fallen race. But we thank you for them still. We thank you for the example of our Savior in this regard. We would fix our eyes on him who died for us. And even in his dying moments, vindicated and honored this truth and cared for the one who was his mother. We thank you for Christ, his example. We trust in him. We look to him for grace to walk worthy of this, and we pray in his name. Amen.